take our Bibles and turn to the book of John, the Gospel of John, chapter 3, as we continue this series, Jesus is Life. Lord willing, next Sunday morning, Easter morning, we're going to conclude this chapter and look at the last paragraph, paragraph of John, chapter 3. But this morning, I'm preaching a message I've entitled, True Greatness. True Greatness. You know, most of us are drawn to greatness. We may not even be particularly ambitious ourselves, but when we see greatness in others, it's attractive to us. We're drawn to it. We enjoy watching greatness. Maybe that's on the football field. Maybe it's on a basketball court. Maybe it's on a stage or a screen. In fact, there's an acronym that's part of our modern vocabulary today, GOAT. We know what GOAT stands for, right? What is it? Greatest of all time, Tom Brady. (laughs) He happens to play for my Tampa Bay Buccaneers. I don't know if you knew that or not. Goat, greatest of all time. This word great, we use it all the time. Uh, We live in Tennessee where you can go to the Great Smoky Mountains. Or if you travel up north to Michigan, you can go see the Great Lakes. This afternoon, you can go to the mall and get a high and tight haircut like me at Great Clips. And maybe on your way out the door, stop by the Great American Cookie Company and get you a snack. You can watch a documentary on the Great Depression or have a dialogue with somebody about what's called the Great Reset. Some of y'all have heard about that. You can even go home, eat some Frosted Flakes, and enjoy them because Tony the Tiger says they're great, right? Throughout history, there have been over 200 individuals, monarchs, and military leaders who have been called the great. Over 200. You're familiar with a lot of them. Alexander the Great. Catherine the Great, Cyrus the Great. There's even one in the Bible, Herod the Great. So we use this term great an awful lot. And I think because we use the adjective so often, it can often lose its meaning or its intensity. What does great mean? I think it'd be good to look and see what Jesus says about it. Who would, I, who would Jesus identify as someone who is great? How would he interpret greatness, true greatness, in someone else? Well, he actually did call someone great. In fact, he said he's the greatest. Not Muhammad Ali. He said he was the greatest. Who did Jesus say was the greatest? It was actually his older cousin, John the Baptist. Look at Matthew chapter 11, verse 11. Jesus speaking says this, Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, anybody here born of women? Yeah, that's all of us. Among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. So what is it about John the Baptist that Jesus would say he's great? (laughs) There's no one greater than John the Baptist. Now, no doubt about it, according to Jesus' assessment that he is great, part of the reason John the Baptist is considered great is, is because he had a great mission. He was the forerunner of the Messiah. He was the one that was to prepare the way for the Lord. He was the one who made that bold pronouncement when he saw Jesus coming towards him at the Jordan River. He said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So John the Baptist was great because of his mission. But not only because of his mission, John the Baptist was great in Jesus' eyes because of his meekness. True greatness, friends, is in those who are humble, those who are meek. As great as John's role was of making the way 
for the Messiah of even greater significance, I believe, is how he displayed such humility. And this, according to Jesus, is the mark of true greatness. If you want to be great in the world, there's all kinds of measuring sticks. Money is a measuring stick. Success is a measuring stick. Fame, accomplishments, achievements, degrees, diplomas. In the social media world, greatness is defined by how many followers you have on Instagram or TikTok. You get so many, you're called a social media influencer. Ooh, that's greatness. But how does Jesus describe greatness? Well, we see it portrayed in the way he responds to a question by some of John the Baptist's own disciples. Let's look at our focal passage and see if we can identify the marks of true greatness that are seen in John the Baptist. Look at John chapter 3. We're going to begin reading at verse 22 through verse 30. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase but I must decrease. This is true greatness. And isn't it amazing that in the world's eyes of greatness, it's so far removed from what we see as true greatness in the life and the testimony of John the Baptist in these verses here. Now, I want to explain a little bit about the context of this episode. Uh, The passage begins with those two words, after this. Well, what is the this that this occurs after? Well, all that happens in chapter 2 and chapter 3. Chapter 2, we have Jesus' first miracle, the turning of water into wine at the wedding at Cana. Then Jesus shows up in Jerusalem. He begins casting out all the money changers and the sellers of animals. You move into chapter 3, and that's whenever he has his conversation with Nicodemus in the cover of darkness and seclusion at night. After this, and we don't know how long, it could have been days, perhaps even weeks, after this, Jesus and his disciples, they go into the Judean countryside. Now, remember, most of Jesus' ministry was in Galilee, but this is before he goes to Galilee to minister. His ministry is starting off in the Judean countryside. And what did the gospel writers say they were doing in the Judean countryside? Jesus, he says, was baptizing. Now, if you flip the page over to chapter 4, verse 2, what you'll find out is that actually Jesus himself was not the one doing the physical act of baptizing. His disciples were doing the act of baptizing, but Jesus was leading the baptismal practice. So Jesus was baptizing there in the Judean area. Now, verse 25 tells us that something happened. As Jesus is baptizing, his disciples are baptizing on his behalf, 
John and his disciples are baptizing. Verse 25 tells us that some kind of discussion ensued between John's, the disciple, John's disciples and an unnamed Jewish man. Now, we're not given the details of their conversation, but it was about something to do with purification. And I think we can make an educated guess. We can use our sanctified imagination to try to figure out exactly what were they talking about. What was this issue that they were conversing, or what was the dilemma? I think the, the discussion went something like this. Because baptism was an outward act to, sh to reveal an inward purification, it was a rite of purification, I think their conversation, again, this is just my sanctified imagination, was something like this. An unnamed Jewish man comes up to John's disciples and says, Hey, guys, have y'all heard? Jesus of Nazareth is over there, and he's baptizing too. Well, you guys are baptizing. Who are, who are we supposed to go to? Is your baptism better than Jesus' baptism, or is Jesus' baptism now the baptism that's better than your baptism? And so those disciples say, hmm, that's a good question. Let's go ask John. So they go and talk to John. This is the discussion that leads to their question of their rabbi, John the Baptist. What is this? This is a case of petty jealousy. I know you're not familiar with anything like that, right? This is a case of territorialism. Hey, this is our stuff. This is our deal. This is where, what we're doing. And they're coming to John. Today, there can be jealousy within a church. Ministries, jealous of other ministries. Ministers, jealous of other ministers. This can be jealousy between churches, right? How would you feel if here in our community, a new church popped up just down the road, they were very similar to our philosophy of ministry, our theology, and all of a sudden they're blowing and going and people start leaving this church and start going to that church. How would you feel? How would I feel? One word, jealousy. We can be honest with ourselves, right? We would feel jealousy. Well, this is the case here. Not from John, mind you, but from his disciples. In fact, look again at verse 26. You can hear their concern. You can hear their anxiety in almost every single word. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, now this is the only time in the four Gospels where John the Baptist is referred to as Rabbi. Jesus is referred to as rabbi again and again and again, but they're coming to him saying, Rabbi, you're an important person. It's a term of respect. It's a term of endearment. You're a person of significance, of respect. Rabbi, he who was with you, we're not going to say his name. You know who we're talking about. That guy over there that was with you, the guy that was across the Jordan, you remember him, that one, to whom you, Rabbi, you bore witness. John, don't forget, you're the one that gave him his start. You're the one that blurbed his book. You're the one that had him on your podcast. You got him going. You set him off in the ministry. That guy over there, look, he's baptizing. John, you're John the Baptist. That's your deal. That's all you got. And now Jesus shows up and he's taking your corner. He's doing your thing. And they, the last line of verse 26, and all are going to him. Overstatement, hyperbole, exaggeration, but that's what happens when you're jealous. <laughs> Everybody's going to see him. Rabbi, that guy, I'm not even going to say his name, he's baptizing. He's stealing the show. 
Have you ever experienced this in your own heart? The same kind of emotion, the same type of response. Some other company that's in competition with your company. Another family, a coworker, somebody who has the same hobby or the same interests of you as you. This is the competition, this is the jealousy, this is the resentment, this is the envy that can pop up in our hearts that comes from the fallen human spirit. And so all of us can identify with these kind of things. But what John the Baptist demonstrates is true greatness. True greatness. The last four verses of our passage, John the Baptist makes four statements in response to his disciples' concern, concern about the encroaching and the infringing ministry of Jesus on his territory. And I think these four statements will give us insight as what true greatness really looks like in our own lives. Four things I want to point out. The first one is this. Number one, recognize the provision, the provision of God. Again, he says in verse 27, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. What's John saying here? Guys, it's all from God. Whatever he's given us, whatever we have or whatever we don't have, whatever successes we have or whatever failures we have, we've got to recognize this provision from God. Every single thing comes from God. And so John's saying, my calling, my ministry, my influence, my opportunities, they've all been given to me from God. And what that means is if God chooses to take it away, if God chooses to remove these throngs of the thousands and myriads of people who were following after John, and God chooses to take them away to now follow Jesus, John is saying, that's on God. That's his opportunity and his provision. And I can just hear his disciples saying, John, John, he's your protege, though. No, guys, he's not my protege. He's the point. It's all leading to him. Now listen, is this your attitude? Is this my attitude? When we see other people succeed? Now I'm really not threatened when somebody succeeds in something that I don't really care about. I could give a rip about golf. I don't play golf. I don't watch golf. I hear there's some golf being played this weekend. I don't know. I don't care about golf. If you're really good at golf, congratulations. I don't care. But what about something that I do really care about? I'm a pastor. What if another pastor that I'm friends with, same age as me, same education, same experience, all of a sudden their ministry starts blowing up, their church explodes with growth, they're getting book deals and, and interviews on the radio. Can I just be honest with you for a moment? The green-eyed monster will show up at Troy Wallace's house? That's jealousy? I don't really care if somebody's successful in something that I don't care about, but if somebody's doing something I care about, well, then jealousy is going to come. This is part of the problem with social media in our culture today, right? If you're a mom of young children, you likely have a couple hundred, quote-unquote, friends who are also moms of young children. And so you are in the comparison trap on a regular basis. And that ever-so-thoughtful mom makes the Instagram post of the Bible in her lap and coffee in her hand, 
and the sunlight through the stained glass window is shining in. And the caption says, My children brought me my coffee in bed while singing hymns in four-part harmony. Hashtag blessed. Now that is completely fictional. That didn't actually happen. But we can look at that. How do we respond? Well, on the outside, we can respond with heart emoji, (laughs) thumbs up emoji. We really wish there was a pitchfork in your soul emoji. (laughs) On the outside, we can applaud that. But on the inside, we're like, ugh, I'm out here just trying to survive. John's first response to his disciples and them feeling threatened by Jesus' success is to say, guys, guys, hold on a minute. It's all from God. Whatever we have, whatever ministry opportunity God gives you, God gives us collectively as a church, whatever he may take away, it's all from God. We don't have, John says, even one thing unless it's given from heaven. There's no such thing as a self-made man. Recognize the provision you have. Do you remember the parable that Jesus told to his disciples about the vineyard and the laborers in the vineyard? He told the story about a man on the vineyard, and he went out early in the morning, and he hired some laborers, and they agreed to a wage, a denarius, a day's wage. About halfway through the day, he needed some more laborers, and see, he goes and he hires some more laborers, and they work. And then at the end of the day, only one hour left in the work day, and he goes and hires some more laborers. At the end of the day, he pays everybody the same. Now, those who were hired at the beginning of the day and worked all day, likely 12 hours of labor in a vineyard, what did they do? They grumbled and they complained that the people who only worked an hour got paid the same that he got paid. And Jesus says this is how the master responded in Matthew chapter 20, verse 15. The owner of the vineyard, this is God speaking to us. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? Is God allowed to do with his possessions, which is everything, what he wants to do with his possessions? Do you begrudge God's generosity because he's given your neighbor more than he's given you? Here's the question. Do we interpret the world through the goggles of fairness or through the glasses of grace? The goggles of fairness say, well, that's not fair. Well, that's not fair. I'm working harder than he is. That's not fair. Why does she get all the breaks? But the goggles of grace says exactly what John the Baptist says. You wouldn't have one thing unless it was given to you from your Father in heaven. Walking around with those fairness goggles is really a form of self-deception. It's a form of deception. This is exactly what Jesus' half-brother James said in the book he wrote, the book of James. Notice James 1, 16 and 17. James writes, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Don't believe the comparison lie. Don't believe the deception that comes from the comparison trap. Every good gift and every perfect gift comes down from God. 
And isn't it life-giving when other people root for us? Isn't it life-giving when other people cheer us on and encourage us? Well, friend, that's what we're called to do for other people. Regardless of what the fairness goggles say, put on the goggles of grace and you'll be able to see everything through grace and you'll be able to cheer other people on. You'll be able to encourage people in what they're doing. So that's the first thing we see in John the Baptist's response to his jealous disciples. Just guys, recognize the provision. It all comes from God. Here's the second thing. Number two, understand your position. Understand your position. Again, look at verse 28. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. John's saying, guys, I've told you again and again, over and over, you can bear witness to this. I've told you, I'm not the guy. <laughs> I'm not the Christ. And now let's be honest with ourselves for just a moment. If we were John the Baptist and this was happening, if we were in John's shoes, and even if we had all of our theology correct, if all of our doctrinal ducks were in a row and we recognized I'm not the guy, he's the guy, there's still a tendency in all of us to think, yeah, but Jesus, do you got to be doing my work? Baptizing? <laughs> you got to be in the Jordan where I'm doing the, the ministry? We can see this happen sometimes in the sports world, Right? What does the NFL veteran quarterback do whenever the team he's playing for drafts a rookie phenom? We've seen this happen again and again. Joe Montana and the 49ers get Steve Young, the phenom. Or Brett Favre, classic veteran, and the Packers draft Aaron Rodgers. Peyton Manning, well, you better not say anything bad about Peyton Manning. This is Tennessee. <laughs> And the Colts get Andrew Luck. Or with the, uh, when Drew Bledsoe and Tom Brady were playing for the Patriots together. What happens? You get two great quarterbacks, one veteran, one rookie. In all four of these cases, guess what happened? The veteran stepped aside. Joe Montana went to the Chiefs. Brett Favre went to the Vikings. Peyton Manning went to the Broncos. And Drew Bledsoe went to the Bills. This is what happens. Somebody's got to move out of the way. This is why bands break up. This is why every single presidential administration in the White House has backbiting and infighting because somebody wants recognition. Somebody wants to be out front. Nobody wants to be upstaged by anybody else in the administration. But John the Baptist says, guys, understand your position. Know your role. Think of the scene. Two rabbis, two sets of disciples, two baptisms, two crowds. Competition is going to be natural in their minds. And here, John, he's been the big dog of the show, and the younger cousin shows up, and it almost seems like to his disciples that he's sucking all the oxygen out of the room. And they say, what are you going to do about it? And he says, absolutely nothing. What am I going to do about it? I'm going to step aside. What am I going to do about it? I, I'm going to give him the position that he regards, that he desires, that he deserves. That is first place. And that same reality is true for me. He says, I've not sent to be the way. I've been sent to show the way. I've already given one football illustration, but you can have enough, never have enough football illustrations in a sermon, right? I love the movie Rudy. 
Not because I like Notre Dame football. I do not like Notre Dame football, but I like this movie. It's a great story about this undersized walk-on who's trying to play for the fighting Irish, and he never gets his shot. This Father Kavanaugh is his kind of go-to guy to give him counsel and kind of guides him through his time at Notre Dame. And there's a great line in the film that Father Kavanaugh says to Rudy. He says, in over 35 years of religious studies, I have landed on two hard, incontrovertible facts. Number one, there is a God. And number two, I am not him. That's a great truth to come around. There is a God, and I'm not him. And neither are you. Know your position. Know who you are. Now, you can take that as discouraging news. Well, I thought I was special. Or you can take that as encouraging and liberating news. I don't have to be the Savior. I don't have to be the Christ. I don't have to, to die for others. All I'm called to do is bear witness for the Christ. I don't have to atone for the sins of the world. I don't have to send the Holy Spirit to convict the world concerning sin. Our, world, our job is not to convict people. We're just to bear witness, just like John. Now, John has already professed this truth over and over and over again, and he's got to remind his disciples again, uh, you yourselves bear me witness. I've told you I'm not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He's the Messiah. Let's get that straight. So verse 27, he says, there's nothing we have that God's not given us. Verse 28, I've told you already, I'm not the Christ. Now verse 29, identify your purpose. Number three, identify your purpose. This is the third mark of true greatness we see in John the Baptist. Look at verse 29. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. John is saying, I'm just thrilled to be the best man. And that's the word we would use in our vernacular to describe the friend of the bridegroom here in this text. It's the best man, right? Now, in our day and time, the member of the bridal party who has the most responsibility for making sure the wedding goes off well, making sure the ceremony works well, making sure everything's in, in line, in, in the bridal party in our day and time, it's the maid or matron of honor. Some maids of honor are really, you know, on top of things. Others are not. The best man, on the other hand, if he doesn't lose a ring and he doesn't pass out during the ceremony, you've done your job, right? There's not a lot of responsibility for best men in our society today. Now, that's not the case in first century Jewish weddings. The best man was responsible for making sure the wedding went off without a hitch, to make sure everything was lined up for the celebration and for the reception, to make sure that it was a smashing success. Now, if you are the best man, and I've done a lot of weddings and there have been some best men, they barely made it through. They barely were able to accomplish the minimal tasks they were given to accomplish. But there is one rule that as the best man, you cannot break. There is one unbreakable rule for the best man. You know what it is? You can't marry the bride. <laughs> You're not there to marry the bride. Could you imagine being at a wedding and you see the groom standing down front, and the best man is standing beside him, and in comes the bride, and the whole congregation stands up. And as she's walking down the aisle towards her future husband, you look at the best man, and he's kind of 
winking at the bride, throwing hay. Call me. Right? You go to the reception, and he tries to break in on the first dance. He tries to put the cake in her mouth in front of the groom. And worse, they start to leave for the honeymoon, and he hops in the back seat. Let's go. You would say, God, what's wrong with this guy? One thing you don't do is the best man. You don't marry the bride. And John the Baptist says, I'm the best man. I don't marry the bride. I make sure everything's prepared for the marriage of the bride and the groom. Who, who is the bride of Christ? The church, right? The church. Pastors more so than probably anybody else, have the opportunity to direct the attention of the bride away from the groom and onto themselves. Pastors have the opportunity to say, hey, it's about me. Look what I'm doing here. Church, watch me. Applaud me. Think of me. Affirm me. The job of the pastor is to point the bride to the groom. And Christian, that's your job too, to point people to Jesus. And in the context of our passage, it seems that John's disciples are under the impression or understanding that somehow because of this change of position, of John being the lead guy in the region and now Jesus is the lead guy, that somehow John must be absolutely miserable with the whole deal. And notice what John says at the end of verse 29. He says, therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. I have fullness of joy because I've been pointing people to Jesus. You know, lots of people are looking for fulfillment. Lots of people are looking for satisfaction, for meaning, for purpose. Christian, can I identify for you your purpose? <laughs> It's pointing people to Jesus, directing people towards Christ. And what you'll discover is when you live for that purpose, that's when you find fullness of joy. This word complete at the end of verse 29, it means to be overflowing, to be crammed to the top. My joy is complete. And I would ask you, what completes your joy? Or better, what do you think completes your joy? We can often think that next click on our Amazon cart that's going to complete my joy. If I just buy this thing, I'm going to be so happy. And we look at the tracking, right? Every day, a couple times a day, when's that package going to show up on my doorstep? UPS even has this thing now. It's ridiculous. Where they, you can actually follow the GPS location of your package throughout the day on a map. Oh, it's in my neighborhood. <laughs> Coming down my street, he's about to stop at my house and drop off my package. Oh, no, he passed my house. What are you doing? Get back. Put that package back where it goes. What kind of a nut job would do that? Right? <laughs> we think that's going to complete our joy. Or maybe if I just get the right romantic relationship, it'll complete my joy. If I just get the right job or I have the right promotion or I go to the right school, if I could just have a kid... I can just get the kids out of the house. My joy will be complete. John says, my joy is complete when I'm pointing people to Jesus. 
John the Baptist said, when he walks in his purpose, his joy is crammed full to the top. And that leads right into the fourth and final thing we see of a mark of true greatness. Number four, Jesus is the point. Jesus is the point. Verse 30, the famous line, he, Jesus, must increase, but I must decrease. Here is that profound word we saw at the beginning of chapter 3 that came from the lips of Jesus, that word must. (laughs) It's got to happen. You must be born again. The Son of Man must be lifted up on a cross. And here John the Baptist says it. He, Jesus, must increase. I must decrease. Today, throughout the morning, I've been up since 349. I've prayed this prayer at least 100 times. Jesus, you must increase. I must decrease. We just try praying that prayer some? Lord, you must increase. I must decrease. Why? Because Jesus is the point. It's not about me. I'm not the main attraction here. In fact, would you say those three phrases with me? Jesus is the point. It's not about me. I'm not the main attraction. Isn't that freeing? I hope you meant it. (laughs) This is true greatness. He must increase, and I must decrease. These are the last words of John the Baptist recorded in John the Apostle's gospel account. He must increase, and I must decrease. And it's one of the greatest utterances ever to fall from human lips. Now, one thing to keep in mind is we continue our study, a two-year study, we think, through the Gospel of John that will end in December 2023. One thing to keep in mind is that John, in his Gospel account, is being very selective. He wrote this Gospel about 30 years after the other three Gospel accounts had already been written. So people who were reading this likely were familiar with Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and now they're reading John. In fact, notice what John said at the very last verse of the last chapter of John's gospel. John writes these words, Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. John is saying there is an inexhaustible number of things I could tell you about Jesus and about his work and about his ministry. So in other words, he's being very, very selective. John is presenting to us, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, some very selective things that we're to know about. So as we study each one, each week, we need to ask ourselves the question, what's the significance of this episode? What are we to learn from these truths? Do you remember the subject matter of the discussion that was being had before John's disciples went to to John and asked him the question, "Uh, John, (laughs) Rabbi, looking at verse 25, now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. This week in my time of study, like, okay, what's the point of this verse? This can't be just a throwaway verse. It has something it's trying to communicate to us. What's its place here? I want you to think about the two ways that John the Baptist referred to his cousin Jesus, the two word pictures John used, the two metaphors. In chapter 1, verse 29, this is how John the Baptist referred to Jesus. He said, behold, 
the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So one word picture that John the Baptist used to describe Jesus is that he's the Lamb. We talked about that several weeks ago. And then now here in John chapter 3, he uses another word picture, that of a groom, of a husband. So I, I thought about what are these two word pictures, a lamb and a husband, what do they have to do with each other? I remember John, who wrote this gospel account, also wrote three epistles, and he also wrote the book of Revelation. Look at the next to the last chapter of our Bible, Revelation 21, verse 9, a curious verse. Then came one of the seven angels and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. You see, Jesus is the Lamb, but he's also the husband of the bride. He's the groom. And these two word pictures that John the Baptist uses, Jesus is the, both of those things, and John the Revelator records them for us together. Now back to the concept of purification. Is there anywhere else in the Bible that you can think of where there's marriage, husband-wife language to do with this concept of purification? Any passage come to mind, Bible students? And a hush was upon the ground. Ephesians chapter 5. Some of y'all thought of it, you just didn't want to say it in case you were wrong. <laughs> Ephesians 5. The Lamb, Jesus Christ, is the husband to the bride, the church. And notice what Ephesians 5 says. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Why? That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her, that's purification, by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. You see, when the groom comes for the bride, he desires, and so he is purifying, and he is cleansing a bride for himself that is pure, without spot, without blemish. How are we purified by Jesus? Because he is also the Lamb of God, who takes away our sins. Jesus, as our great bridegroom, is the Lamb of God who died, who shed his blood, because Jesus must move to the forefront so that he could die on the cross and purify us. I'll close with this. Back in the 19th century, there was a group of American Christians who were going to be traveling to London. And their friends said, oh, you're going to London you must go hear these two famed preachers. They were the great preachers of their day in London, Joseph Parker and Charles Spurgeon. They said, go listen to both of those preachers while you're there and come back and tell us about them as preachers. Of course, this is before television and the Internet. So, yes, they went. On that Sunday morning that they're in London, they go to hear Joseph Parker preach in London, England. And as they walked out and departed the service, one of them exclaimed, I do declare it must be said, for there is no doubt that Joseph Parker is the greatest preacher to ever live. And so they talked among themselves, why don't we just come back and listen to Joseph Parker again tonight at the evening service? But they said, no, 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 we told our friends we'd listen to Charles Spurgeon too. So that evening, they go to the Metropolitan Tabernacle and they hear Charles Spurgeon preach, and as they walked out, they were 
in silence. And one of them finally broke the silence and said, I do declare, and it must be said, for there is no doubt, Jesus Christ is the greatest Savior that ever was. Our job as preachers, our job as Christians is not to get people to look at us. We're to show them Jesus. He must become greater. We must become less. I started this message by showing you from Matthew 11 how Jesus identified true greatness in John the Baptist. I didn't read you the whole verse. Here's Matthew 11, 11, the whole verse. Jesus said, truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Listen to the last half of the verse. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. You can be great in the kingdom as we are least in the kingdom. He must increase, I must decrease. And this is the pathway to true greatness. And that leads to my last thought. True greatness is only attainable when we humble ourselves before the glory of Jesus.